0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com.
1: And welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, making martinis in a paper shredder. I want to get into the martini and the margaritas and the Bloody Marys of it all, but I think first we should uh, introduce our very special guest. Joining us on the show, it's Mr. David Schroeder from the Cold War channel on YouTube. Hello, David. How are you? Damn. Scott, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing really well. Can't complain. It was uh, pouring rain and the sun's just come out behind me, so uh, apparently the skies have opened as we've started this chat, so it can only bode well for the film this week. It's clear falcon sailing weather. (laughs) 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 but um maybe before we talk about the film a little bit let's talk about you david now i i actually came across your channel through a mutual friend which is uh, ian at the cold war conversations podcast who's been on the show before to talk about bridge of spies another cold war film and i thought hey let's get another cold war expert on to tackle a cold war film perfect synergy there but uh, maybe going back a little bit you know what what piqued your interest in the cold war
0: well, um, thank you for having me on. I'll start with that, guys, and I'd say that the uh, the term expert there is probably doing a lot of heavy lifting in uh, that particular sentence, but uh, I'm, uh, I do, I, I host, on the host of a YouTube channel called The Cold War Channel. Uh, we're taking a week-by-week episodic look at uh, really like the, as broad a spectrum of the, like a, basically a 45 years like chunk of history, um, using the Cold War as a backdrop. Uh, lots of stuff that we talk about is, you know, USA versus uh, Soviet Union, KGB versus CIA type thing. But we also delve into a lot of other topics that um, certainly have a Cold War angle to them, but aren't uh, aren't quite as much on the the beaten path um, as some of the the main the big narratives. Um, we hit the hit the high points and try to go into some of the little nooks and crannies. Um, as for my interest in the Cold War, um, I grew up, uh, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the, through the 80s uh, under the, the specter of nuclear annihilation. And if anybody's ever here, if anybody listening has ever seen the movie Threads, uh, it's certainly not a spy movie. Um, but that, uh, that whole sort of genre of existence is one that has haunted my dreams for years now. Um, but uh, playing video games as a kid. Uh, that were very much like flight sims and things like that, that had a Cold War backdrop. So it of got me reading a little bit uh, into the history of, you know, different, you know, of the Cold War conflict, and the, you know, American military hardware and Soviet military hardware. And I sort of found I had an interest in history and uh, did, a, did a history degree at uh, university, um, focused more on European 20th century history, but not really on the Cold War. And then I... Finished my finished my degree and went off into the, the working world and ignored history for about 20 years and then a few years ago I got pulled back into things through a, a, a Facebook posting looking for someone to host a podcast of all things um, and met with, uh, met with one of the guys he's actually one of the, the, the founders from uh, Kings and Generals mm-hmm. another um, big, fairly fairly big uh, YouTube channel I uh, should probably give them a shout out um, not that they need the support, but I'll give them the shout out anyways. and uh, met with them and instead of ending up hosting a podcast, I uh, ended up in front of a, in front of a camera uh, presenting uh, the the Cold War channel uh, once a week every week since March of 2019. so and along with that, I've sort of that really rekindled my own independent interest in doing like a lot of independent research um, and reading and like watching movies, books and all those things that go along with sort of what good history could be, should be. Um, and then, you know, so I get a, a message from uh, from yourselves and uh, here I am sitting in the chair today. So,
1: Well, and you said you weren't an expert. I mean, you've just laid it out pretty well there. But um, I think another question I had, I think before we move over to the film, obviously you've we've set up your interest in the Cold War, but what about spy movies?
0: That's what we talk about. What's what are you into when it comes to spy movies? I, I was I was dreading this question to be to be perfectly honest I've I beyond say like Bond and Bourne um, sort of the, the the really big players I've never in my life I've never really been a a big huge spy movie guy uh, I like war movies um, I like well done movies and certainly a well done spy movie you know that's will absolutely pique my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, But in terms of my, like, do I have a deep-rooted interest in spy movies? Probably certainly not like yourselves. I mean, you guys definitely, you guys do a great job every week um, going in and sort of picking stuff apart. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that you guys are looking at that, you know, it's like as I listen to the episodes, like, wow, like thats I'm learning a ton from you guys. Um, But, I mean, my my interest in spy movies, I like a really well-done spy movie. Uh, I love the Bond, like the Bond series overall. Um, I've grown up with those. Um, I know we, there's usually a question that follows on here, like, you know, who is my Bond? And I'll, I'll, uh, boom, I'm, I'm going to wait for you guys to ask me the question. You're making but, it easy uh, for me here. I like but, this. Um, this is, uh... But, uh, like, I like, I like Bond. I came late to the Bourne series. Um, I'd read the, I think the, I'd read the first book many, many years ago. Um, but didn't actually watch the movies until they'd actually probably been out for about 10 years. Um, it's, uh. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I, I, as soon as, I don't go seeking spy movies, but as as soon as one comes on, like I'm absolutely like drawn in and absolutely sucked in. So that's, uh, that's inevitable that that type of thing happens. So.
2: And do you have like any that jump out to you in terms of like Cold War films that maybe people who are listening who don't really know what a good Cold War film is? Is there any that you've just come across that outside of obviously The Bond or what have you, that you go like, you know, I actually appreciated that one just from a historical point of view?
0: i i mean the the one that really jumps out is the spy who came in from the cold, mm. like that is just such a it's such a classic, it's such a well done, well put together story. um it's well it's well crafted like the the story's excellent there's the there's intrigue that goes along with it, like it's well acted, well like the the camera work in it is great. Uh, just a really fantastic movie, and certainly gives a really it captures the atmosphere incredibly well which is actually what i think that's if you get a spy movie that doesn't capture the right atmosphere um, of what the story that they're trying the, the story that the director and the actors are trying to tell uh completely ruins it so um that is a to me that's an absolute classic of the the real of the, the real classic spy genre um i almost don't think of bond as being a spy movie the spy movies anymore hmm. and you guys can you guys can boot me off at some point here But uh, to me, they're they're much more about like action adventure as opposed to to espionage. Um, Not that I don't love the Bond movies, but uh, that's why today's film, like it really, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, but well, you um,
1: you say we can kick you off, but we stopped recording about five (laughs) minutes ago when you said you weren't really into spy movies to be honest with you. Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. So. No, no, no. We, we appreciate the expertise I imagine you're going to bring to this film. And I think that sets us up, Cam. What on earth are we talking about? We are tackling
2: the 1985 John Schlesinger film, The Falcon and the Stoneman,
1: starring Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. Now, this is one I had never, ever, ever heard of, but that seems to be a common theme on this podcast, so that's, that's me. Um, David, had you ever come across this film before?
0: I have I had heard of this movie probably within the last year, year and a bit or so. Um and sort of as when I heard the title I went and sort of checked on, you know, it's like you check IMDb and sort of see what the the ratings and everything are and it's it it isn't a, it isn't a 10 like, you know, 10 out of 10 movie type of thing. Um so I'd heard of it and it was sort of on my radar, but I hadn't but I hadn't seen it. Um and I'd never heard of it prior to this um but uh when when we were talking about uh like sort of a movie that uh, we could we could sit and chat about for an episode um and this suggestion came up it was like you know what this is this is the perfect opportunity um to actually go and check out um what really is i'm going to say uh, like a true cold war spy movie like it fits it fits the, like it takes all those boxes hits that that genre perfectly so i i
1: can see this film getting a lot of uh, attention sort of post snowden That sort of stuff. But Cam, had you ever heard of this film? I had
2: heard of it. Um, I remember (laughs) I have like this weird long history with this movie where I had never actually seen it. But um, at the days when the VHS tapes were being phased out, there was places blowing out VHSs like for nothing, like 49 cents kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw this one, and so I grabbed it because I'm like, oh, Sean Penn, I'll totally watch this, director of Midnight Cowboy. And then so I headed home, and one night I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch some of these VHSs that I've been hoarding and then get rid of them because they're taking up space. And I started with the Robert Redford movie Legal Eagles, which my V uh, VCR quickly ate up. And so I realized I did not have a workable v- VHS player anymore. And so Falcon and the Snowman sat on my show for a couple of years till I just threw it out because it was like I'm not going to be watching any VHSs. And so about a year ago... It showed up at a Salvation Army here, a DVD of this movie, and so I bought it because we'd started this podcast, and I thought, at some point,
1: we're going to talk about Falcon and the Snowman. <laughs> I love that it's just been in your house for the last, like, 10 years and never been watched. <laughs> most unloved toy in the toy box.
2: It was circling overhead. It just never quite landed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's getting quite frosty. That's right. That's right. Uh, there's going to be more puns, folks. Don't you worry about it. Well, um... Letterbox.com synopsis for those who haven't seen the film or haven't even heard of the film. Here we go. The Falcon and the Snowman. They came from the best of families and they committed the worst of crimes. The true story of a disillusioned military contractor, employee, and his drug pusher childhood friend who became walk-in spies for the Soviet Union. Boom. Yeah, I mean, when you're summing up a real-world event, there you go. Yeah, I couldn't ask for better than that. Really, that's uh, doesn't give anything away, but it just gives you enough, teases you. Um, well, I think before we get into the review, as per Cam, should we join the seminary and talk about uh, how this film was made? <laughs>
2: yeah. So, um, you know, the real life events, obviously were a big deal and they inspired a book by a writer named Robert Lindsay and he wrote a novel called The Falcon and the Snowman, a true story of friendship and espionage. And this book got some traction and 20th Century Fox wanted it, so they paid six figures for the rights to it. But to actually be able to make it into a movie, they had to also get releases signed by Christopher Boyce and Andrew Dalton Lee, the two figures at the center of this movie. And so they had a hundred thousand dollars set aside for these two guys and their lawyers to make this movie happen, which I think they said actually proved to be more money than they got selling secrets to the Russians. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood folks. Hollywood. <laughs> uh, and I believe Boyce actually turned down um the money, but his lawyer took his. <laughs> so Oh,
1: charming. That's very exactly. charming.
2: Yeah. And um, so, nine days after signing off his rights, um, Boyce actually escaped from prison and went on a bank robbing spree. Um, so, uh, you know, <laughs> it was back in the news. So, that's kind of good news when you're making a movie because it's like the events are unfolding as the movie's going through development.
1: Sure. I, I suppose it like adds to the suspense of the film coming out because the guy it's based on is out there robbing banks and he's at large. Maybe he turns up on the set. I don't know. Crazy. He hit
2: like 16 or 17 banks or something. I think, uh, I, I think
0: I read it was like 17 banks in the space of about a year. Yeah. That's crazy. Which is, uh, that's um, that, that's a movie waiting to happen right there as well, but uh, part, two, part two. Robert Lindsay actually wrote a book about that called, um,
2: it was called The Flight of the Falcon that was published in 83. So yeah, he had the same
1: idea someone's making money from the story i appreciate that Mm -hmm. it's interesting as well that uh, i I think maybe we'll get into it when we get to the review That the the christopher boyce person well no christopher boyce is a person christopher boyce is definitely played as somewhat of a hero in this film or somewhat of a good guy misunderstood sympathetic i suppose in some ways yeah yeah um whereas i think reality is perhaps a bit different
2: yeah um, and so they once they had the right sign, they brought in um screenwriter Steve Zalian. Um now, Steven Zalian, for those that don't know, this was his debut effort, but he would go on to become a really big deal. He'd gotten his start as an editor on movies like Breaker Breaker and Kingdom of the Spiders, which I have a certain amount of fondness for. That's a William Shatner Killer Spider movie. Um but this was his debut screenplay, and he would go on to write movies like Schindler's List, American Gangster, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and also he co-wrote the 1996 Mission Impossible film as well. So Stephen Zalian's one of the biggest working screenwriters now. He also did The Irishman just a couple of years ago.
1: That actually answers one of my thoughts about the film, funnily enough, knowing he's behind it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, all right. I, I think I've answered the question I haven't even posed yet, but that's interesting. Uh, yeah it's It's fun to see that this is that guy's first piece of work this This is him you know dipping his toe into the water before he takes flight. I think what's most impressive about it to me is that this
2: is giving nothing away about the movie, but it's uh, about what my thoughts of the movie are. but like it's a very dense you know collection of material here, and mm. as a first time effort, that's actually you know really taking something you chew on like it's not a kind of a basic you know put your toe in the water screenwriting effort
1: and and also we've had a lot of adaptations on the show mm-hmm. you know just recently we had all the old knives and the declassified episode and you go back to little drama girl all kinds of stuff and a lot of the time it's is more often a miss than a hit yeah it's true uh, firefox is another one that was uh, quite well liked but a bit of a tough one to adapt yeah no kidding um yeah and, and i suppose I, I should ask david really i mean uh, the the foundation of this movie, obviously we're exploring, but it might be worth diving into, perhaps the review, the reality. And maybe we can contrast that in the film itself, but like, you know, had, had you been aware of
0: this story? No, actually this, this was a new, this is a new story for me, um, which isn't necessarily a surprise. As I said earlier, like the, the that word expert they use does, you know, certainly doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but, I mean, there's there's a, so many stories like this mm. from the the throughout the Cold War period mm-hmm. um, that we that I think we in the public um, sphere and even in academic as academic researchers we know the tip of the iceberg in terms of things like this that that have, that have happened. Um, without going too much into the plot yet, uh, the reason that this is a public story is because of the way that it all sort of unfolded at the end. Um, where it it hit the media um and it turned into a a big thing, and there was opportunities to sort of to squelch things and the, that that wasn't taken um, in in favor of shedding light on everything, uh, which certainly wasn't the I don't think was the necessarily the preferred option um, when exposing espionage cases. Uh, no one, no no national country when you're in a, a quote unquote, Existential fight for existence um, wants to admit that uh, your own citizens are, you know, betray- committing acts of treason and betrayal things like that. Uh, the overall environment where this takes place—it's—they uh, set this st- actually. I have to give the the movie credit. They set the stage very well um, in terms of the time period. They never give a date, mm-hmm. um, and it's a this very simple tool that they use of just showing the Watergate hearings on TV, which. There's there's no there's no background given in terms of sort of the, the national environment Vietnam's winding down Watergates happening um, there's that real I think malaise is the 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 term that Jimmy Carter used uh, a few years later uh, but there's certainly a lot of disillusionment in the United States mm-hmm. um, and the the movie I think does a really good job of tapping into that um, I think it Fails on a few other things to really capitalize and sort of explain further on some of that, um, but I think the movie actually does do a, a good job of of setting and establishing uh, a national mood of um, where there there is this disillusionment with with government and with um, government overreach as well. Mm-hmm. the the church The church committee, uh, Senate hearings uh, investigating the CIA, uh, started in nineteen seventy five, I believe. Um, and those were those were public hearings looking in where things like M, projects like MK MKUltra, mm-hmm. um, which was, I mean, CIA, government, mind control, uh, men who stare at goats um, kind of kind of stuff. Um, L.S., you know, testing, keeping people high on LSD for, you know, four months at a time kind of thing to see if you can, you know, reprogram their brains um, with zero consent, obviously because it's the CIA, why would you bother to ask for permission? But all of these things are sort of coming into the public light uh, through the 1970s uh, when the, the movie takes place. And certainly, I'd say by 1985, when the movie's actually being um, lead up to 1985, when the movie's being filmed and then released, That that's hitting a real public Outcry over sort of government overreach and uh, this this real split of the where the the right starts to move to the right and the left starts to move to the left in terms of how you trust your government and how much faith you put in your government, um, like all of those kind of things. And I think the movie actually does a really good job of setting setting all of that and setting the tone for that. Um, there's individual things that I wish that the movie could have done better, but I'm we'll probably talk about that and break that down a little bit further in, into our conversation. But yeah
1: um but you know i i as i say cam i was sort of remiss if we didn't sort of give a contextualization of the time so thank you for that mm-hmm. david but please yeah. continue with the uh seminaries <laughs> yes yeah,
2: so they brought in uh director john schlesinger and he had gotten his the, his career start in his in the 50s where he started out as an actor and a director he'd done a short in 1952 called um the starfish before really making his name in the 60s with a pair of julie christie films called billy Liar and Darling. Darling was nominated for Best Picture that year and proved to be quite a big deal. And it was 1969, he did Midnight Cowboy, and he was off and running, um, won the um, directing Oscar that year and went on to do movies like Day of the Locust and Marathon Men. And uh, Falcon Fell kind of just post that 70s period, which was really rich. And just uh, notable, he ended his career in a really. Like his final film is a really strange one to contrast against, I think, what he does best. It was a movie in the year 2000 called The Next Best Thing, and it was a Madonna Rupert Everett um, comedy drama. Good grief. Th- yeah. Those words don't make sense together.
1: Yeah, I, that's a weird combination. He, yeah, he made that in 2000 and died in 2003. It's sort of. What was t- in the water in 2000 that they were hiring Madonna for films? I'm looking at this film and Dying of the Day specifically, but. Oh, well, I can answer that easily. Avita,
2: Avita was a huge hit. Oh, yeah. And that's 96. Uh, and she had a pretty decent acting career because you had Desperately Seeking Susan. You had A League of Their Own. She was someone who, whenever she popped up, she would actually be pretty good. She's good in Dick Tracy.
1: Okay. Cam, Cam is obviously a big Madonna fan. I huge will back fan. down from that. I will back down, <laughs> sir. Please continue. You obviously couldn't see my cone bra the way the camera's framed. <laughs> oh, no, I can see it. I
2: just chose not to acknowledge it. <laughs> And apparently so Sh- it, 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 really, it really is the twin elephant in the room. So. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Schlesinger initially wanted uh, Martin Hewitt to star in this film, not Timothy Hutton. Martin Hewitt was someone I was not familiar with, so I looked up what he's best known for. He's best known for a movie called Endless Love, which I think was a bit of a you know, kind of a hit in the eighties. And also Yellow Beard. A movie that Scott and I referenced in our trenchcoat episode a while back, and I had
1: a weird trench or uh, yellow beard story. <laughs> for some reason, Yellowbeard's getting so much love on spyhards. I feel like I should watch it just to, you know, just to say I have coming soon to agents in the field. <laughs> <laughs> God. yeah,
2: so ultimately, they cast Timothy Hutton, who was still riding high off his Oscar win for ordinary people in nineteen eighty. And he actually wanted Jackie O'Haley cast opposite him as, uh, you know, the Sean Penn character, you know, the Dalton Lee character. And I guess the producers weren't that into that. So they cast Sean Penn instead. And somewhere along the process, Fox got cold feet about this project and just decided that the two protagonists were too unlikable. They didn't think American audiences would respond to them. And they said, you know what, we don't maybe want this so they basically passed it over to um orion pictures who funded it for 12 million dollars and don't you mean mm-hmm. don't you mean snowy feet no no i don't Scott. <laughs> 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 And apparently. And apparently, during production, Sean Penn and John Schlesinger butted heads badly To the point where they wouldn't even talk to one another And I have a quote from Sean Penn about this experience He says, I had difficulty with John because he wanted my character to be something that I didn't think had anything to do with the story Dustin Hoffman told me that he was jealous that I had won his crown from Schlesinger as the most unprofessional actor he had ever worked with the way I see it, if the actor's instincts are against the grain of the director's, then the director casts the wrong guy. The director has got to support the instincts of the actor every time. You can compromise and fit the director's mold, but the spark of spontaneity will be gone. Well, that was a mouthful. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Sean Penn, still passionate about that experience, because I think this was like a 2004 interview or something, like 20 years later. So he wanted him to be something that he wasn't being... You I mean, he wanted him to act. Oh, I think oh. it was like Schlesinger. This is a guy who's coming up in the 50s and 60s where directors molded actors. And now he's dealing with, I mean, it's interesting. He cites Dustin Hoffman. He comes out of that 70s and late 60s period where you get more of those method actors who they're operating on their own little plane of existence. And I think Sean Penn falls very closely into that as well. Maybe Jackie Earl Haley would have been the better choice for Schlesinger. <laughs> Someone they could that was a really bad pun
1: we'll move on go on cam
2: yes so as i said budget of 12 million domestically did 17.1 and to the best of my uh, research didn't seem to really open overseas in any sort of recognizable way Uh, at the box office it landed at number 52 for the year between to live and die in la the excellent william friedkin film and kiss of the spider woman the william hurt film that he won best actor for and the top three for this year were, number one, Out of Africa, number two, Back to the Future, and number three, Rambo, First Blood, Part 2.
1: It's still one of my favorite titles in cinema history, First Blood, Part 2. It's pretty great. The Rambo great. naming conventions are incredible. <laughs> They're insane. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting that you say you didn't get much of a, a launch overseas. It definitely had a showings here in the UK. Mm-hmm. only reason I know that is because I was watching... Because I was trying to get some research done for the film earlier on today. I was watching like Press Junkets. And there was one uh, on a British television show. Interesting. With, I, I believe David Suchet and a British host. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But I'll, I'll post a link during the week on, on Twitter. Um, and yeah, so it definitely got and it got reviewed. And yeah, so it definitely did have showings in the UK.
2: Yeah, it's interesting how like certain movies like this. And it's possibly because it was a real just flop on that side of the pond, that they just don't even record the box office or post it anywhere. So, yeah, don't know. But that can be the case often when it comes to these like very American stories. They just don't translate when shipped around internationally. And back in those days, studios were not as obsessed with international money as they are now.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can buy it. I understand it. And to be fair, there's a lot of films that we've covered, from, especially from this 80s selection that just seem to vanish as soon as they leave North America.
2: Yeah, The Man with One Red Shoe, for example. Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any more for us, Cam? Yeah, just a couple notes I'll make, um, sort of in the wake of this movie, um, that uh, the real-life people, um, Dalton Lee, was paroled in 1998 and briefly worked as Sean
1: Penn's assistant. I would watch that movie. (laughs) Whoa. Okay, so he hires him... So he hires him out of prison, basically. Yeah. I, actually, I was bad to make a joke about it, but fair play to Sean Penn for sort yeah. of supporting an ex-convict and giving him a, a, a job and giving him a chance. So hopefully, uh, hopefully it was fine. Yeah. And he was um, sentenced to life. So the fact he got out
2: in 1998, I guess not too shabby. And then also Christopher Boyce was paroled in 2003. I would guess he probably would have been earlier, were it not for the bank robbery,
1: you know, scheme. Yeah, probably didn't uh, help his cause. No, go on, David.
0: He 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 got an extra, um, he got an extra twenty five or twenty eight years uh, for the uh, prison escape and the string of bank robberies. Um, he I would think it was originally a forty year forty year sentence
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, handed down, and then uh, he only served three years of that before he got out. Uh, recaptured a year later, and then sentenced to an additional twenty-five to twenty-five or twenty-eight years. Um, and he got out, as he said, as he said, uh, got out twenty two thousand three, two two thousand three. Um, so really, I mean, that's it, only an extra five years um, that uh, that he served uh, in, uh, uh, compared to Lee. So I don't know if you're how we how you do that reconciliation that kind of math, but uh, well, I don't know. <laughs>
1: But, um, okay, well, we're here. Uh, Cam has fixed us all a margarita that's filled with uh, paper. Um, I still can't understand that. But I'm very curious, David, you've, you've stepped up to the mark to tackle this show with us. You're not the biggest spy expert, but you're a Cold War expert. So let's hope, uh, let's hope you found some things to enjoy in this film. But what did you think of the Falcon and the Snowman?
0: I'm going to give it a mixed review. Uh, I liked parts of it. Um, but I liked a lot of individual parts, and I think there's a lot of individual threads that work really well. Um, but a lot of it, when it comes together, like this, this isn't. I think there's a there's some pacing issues with it. There's it's. I think in general the movies can. I almost think that the movie's confused in terms of the story that it wants to tell and that it wants to focus on. Um, that sort of was my my general takeaway from it. Um, but as I sat and sort of reflected on it and thought about it afterwards. Um what I started with. I think there's some really some really good and some really well done threads um that run through the movie. Uh that I just wish that Schlesinger had sort of picked one or two to run with instead of trying to take four or five and create one larger one larger thread. Um I I, I like the movie. I think it was it was interesting. Uh but there's it's it's not going to appeal to everybody. It's certainly not a, it's much more of a, it's not a Bond movie. It's not a lot of, you know, there's no action. There's no explosions. There's no, you know, jumping out of, you know, jumping out of aqua cars that fall out of planes. Like there's not there's none of that. Um, But I think what it does really well is that it sort of reflects what a lot of real espionage during the Cold War period was like. It was people who have been, either volunteered to to sort of smuggle secrets out or have been co-opted. There's sort of those two sort of main approaches that either CIA or KGB or Stasi or, you know, whatever, whatever MI5, MI6, whatever organization it happened to be, that they would sort of take an approach to to develop an agent. And, I, and a lot of it really was just sort of like, you know, it's oppor- opportunistic. Take the information that you can and pass it along. It's not. Oh my God! We have to get the 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 secrets to the to the bomb, or like here, and you've got to sneak in and like get it out, and you you know murder 52 people on the way and way back out again. It's very much this mundane, like you know, go to work, take pictures of paperwork, and sneak that back out. Um, and I think I think the film actually does a pretty good job of sort of cap capturing that. There's some Dramatization. I think there's some moments that they try to hype that up and like you know really develop it because it's a movie. At the end of the day, it's looking for entertainment. Um, but I think that the movie has a good thread. One of the threads that they ran through with that is that that type of tradecraft um, is is part of what being a spy is, as opposed to the the bonds, the bonds and the boards. So
1: it's it's interesting. Uh, one of the things I was hoping you were discussing, you did straight away, was sort of talking about. The, the tradecraft is the, the film likes to use the word tradecraft and, and the reality of it and how well that's depicted. So it's nice to know you, you think that was a, a a fair depiction of what it's like. I mean, no one was in the room when that was done, apart from the two people that were in prison at the time. So a lot of this is an extrapolation of reports that they've read and things that are in the media. Duh, 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 duh. And I think they interviewed both the, the two chaps in prison. I think both the actors spoke to them as part of their preparation. So mm-hmm. there's probably a lot of that in there, too. But i'm glad you enjoyed that but uh well cam what about you what did you think
2: when this one started off i'm gonna say for the first hour i was going "Uh uh-oh like this felt like it could be a very slow burn and (laughs) with potentially no great um you know satisfaction arriving by the end but i found myself it really kind of lulled me in and won me over as honestly it kind of began to shift the focus onto the sean penn character Because I really think he is the really compelling, you know, driving force of what's really happening in this movie. And obviously what Boyce is doing, what Timothy Hutton's character is doing is important and necessary. But I often felt the movie just came to life when I was following Sean Penn as he's heading to Mexico to, you know, go to the Soviet embassy. And just like that sweaty, nervous energy he had throughout this movie, it gave me like that kind of like... There's not a lot of tension in this movie, and I think that's actually a bit of an issue with it, but I found what tension there was just came from Sean Penn's just, like, fidgeting his way through these very potentially volatile situations. So, I agree, like, pacing-wise, it's definitely a a test at times, and it's a movie that when I finished, I thought, it's interesting because, you know, I looked up a couple reviews, you know, like, Roger Ebert was over the moon for this. He gave it a 4 out of 4 rating, and I think, like, at the time, probably for, you know, certain reviewers and everything, it really touched on a sense of national mood for them, and they really recognized the value in it, whereas I don't know that it's aged particularly well. It's one, I think, that people interested in spy, you know, spy craft or tradecraft or the Cold War kind of messiness, like, that's something I really like, kind of the very tactile messiness of this movie. I think it translates quite well, but I have a hard time imagining that I could, you know, just pass this off to friends and be like, "Here, watch Falcon and the Snowman. You're really going to have a great time with this one on Saturday night."
1: Yeah, I I do I do completely get your point of view there, and I think it is interesting looking at Roger Ebert's review. I don't really hang my hat on Roger Ebert all the time, although we do tend to be in sync a lot of the things he tends to think because I'm also, you know, quite a genius as he is. Clearly. Um yeah, clearly. But I actually myself kind of go against that mm-hmm. i i had cam's experience of not enjoying the first hour particularly but that carried over into the second hour and the 10 minutes after that second hour <laughs> it, it didn't quite go away i i found this film to be really pretentious okay are you talking about the
2: falcon all the scenes of him wistfully watching the falcon <laughs> soar through the air fly
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fly away. What's the Falcon's name? Oh, uh, Fawkes. For Guy Fawkes. Naturally. Fox. Guy Fawkes. Um, I, and I was born on Guy Fawkes Day, so maybe that's why I like the movie a little bit more. Apparently, Laurie Singer's never heard of Guy Fawkes, which is... Uh, I, I found that to be completely bizarre, but I suppose I do live in London, so of course I've heard of him. I don't... Honestly, like, I'm having memories
2: Um, when V for Vendetta came out. They had to actually communicate to... Um, I think to American audiences, largely, what Guy Fox even meant, because in Canada we know, but we're part of the Commonwealth. I don't know, like um, David, is Guy Fox Day really recognized in
0: America? Well, I mean, I'm I'm Canadian, but yeah. Um, so and even here, like I like I've had to because I'm the resident history nerd but mm. at my work. I'm the guy that you know people hear about like Guy Fox Day, and I've got I'm the one that they come to to. Yeah, People ask, what is it? So you sort of give a brief rundown. I think in the US though, like it really is this it's completely unheard of. Like it absolutely it just isn't isn't a thing. So
1: It's fair enough. I mean I suppose then if that's the case, only people who are well read or, or historians or, or interested in history would know then so that that kind of makes sense for Laurie singer I take back my criticism
0: this film's amazing instant knock list fantastic <laughs> it ties well though in I think into the idea of he's he's Catholic I mean Hutton's character is he's Catholic mm-hmm. he's you know he's anti-government like there's there's a there's a nice running thread that they've mm-hmm. sort of developed through the through the the use of Falcon motif Um Unfortunately, they've decided, like, I think Schlesinger decided to develop it using multi-minute shots of the Falcon in flight, which has this (laughs) just ridiculous, almost like 19, it's got a real 1970s feel to it in a lot of ways. Um, Like, I expect to see that from sort of like a late 60s, early 70s type of thing. I, I, I don't know, like... I don't, is that the is that the original version of a plastic bag floating in the wind or like a feather oh. floating through the air kind of thing like is that I don't know if that's
1: that's probably a very fair evolution um yeah, American beauty is connected to the Falcon and the snowman I like it
0: that's it i'll I'll be honest when I was watching the movie though it like it the the movie very much opens up with that as a thing and it closes out with it, and it drove me nuts both at the beginning and at the end like there's four minutes of my life I'm never going to get back to adding zero value to the, to the story. But I'm sitting here in 2022 thinking about it. So maybe maybe it was different and those were simpler times.
2: Maybe. I, I think they really wanted to hammer home the... Because um, at the end he says, I know about predatory behavior. I think they really were doubling down on that Falcon motif,
1: like big time. Well, there's a lot of metaphor in this film. There's mm-hmm. quite a few um of those threads running throughout but like just overall i I said the word pretentious it's quite a heavy word to use for the film because i think a lot of it is good i think sean penn is excellent in this film and it shines when he is given time by himself like him being interrogated by david Suchet is some of the best scenes in the film like him pitching in that restaurant the, the drug exchange and the the bemused look on David Suchet's, Suchet's face as he's thinking about slapping Sean Penn at, you know, <laughs> upside the head for making such a stupid suggestion. Priceless cinema. I really enjoyed that. But everything about Tim Hutton's character, a Christopher Boyce, I just couldn't get on board for. It wound me up to no end. This, like, this well-to-do, you know... Up, upper middle maybe upper class white dude in 80s or what i guess would be 70s america um who who's having such a rough time he's really (laughs) he's really struggling with these watergate hearings oh the angst and you're meant to like you're meant to kind of like feel bad for him that he's so disillusioned that he's decided to betray his government when like you just think How did you get from zero to selling secrets to the Russians? Where was the in-between point where you thought, hey, maybe I should take this to the New York Times? No, 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 no. I'm going to take my secrets to Havana, or sorry, to Mexico, and sell them to the Russians. That makes sense. And then they also go and throw in... I'm really going for this film. I'm sorry, guys. And then they throw in this love story with Laurie Singer, and I just have to think that was thrown in to give Tim <laughs> Hutton someone to smooch in the film, because I like Laurie Singer in The Man with One Red Shoe. I think she's the best thing that film has, and that film has Tom Hanks and Jim Belushi in it. She outshines them both, and Daphne Coleman. But in this film, woof. Good grief. Not a good performance, and there is no chemistry with Tim Hutton. Well, it's there's, there's also no character she's
2: not playing a character oh
1: no 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 she's just a pretty face and it's
2: noteworthy actually man with one red shoe came out the same year so this was 85 was a big year for Lori
0: singer I suppose it it's the you know it's it's the loves the mandatory love story that gets tacked onto every 80s movie sure um she was also just coming off of footloose um, which was I mean I think that was the year 84 I think that was the year before mm-hmm. um, one of the Probably one of the biggest movies of the year. Um, so I mean, that's that's almost uh, how many names can we put up on the marquee uh, yeah. to to have people drawn in? But yeah, like she she was absolute. I think I think I I enjoy her I enjoy her as an actress, um, and other roles that she's been in. But there was I mean, you could easily edit those scenes with her out, and the film wouldn't lose any value. So
1: no it did make me laugh that like he when he decides to go to mexico he just goes home and packs her stuff and then there's this scene of like i don't love you anymore please leave and then she goes okay (laughs) and then and that's it she's basically gone until one scene at the end of the film sure i mean
2: i was fascinated by her alternating careers where when they meet she's like working a pet shop but at
1: the end she's at a movie theater i thought she was shopping at the pet store was she? Yeah, because there was another guy behind the bar. Uh, behind the bar?
0: Pet bar? The bar? <laughs> what kind of pet store is this, Scott? <laughs> it's the best damn pet store in town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: um, okay, I, I, I could lamp on this film some more, but I want to talk likes first. So let's, mm-hmm. let's go around the table. David, first, something you liked about the film.
0: Uh, I I I liked the scenes a lot of the scenes with Sean Penn uh especially um the interactions in Mexico with with the, the KGB overall I thought those were those were almost like a separate but they felt like a separate movie like it was its own sort of mm-hmm. movie thread running on its own um but I thought I thought they captured that really well with the uh, the the almost the, the amateur drug dealer trying to set up and you know do business with the KGB who remained this you know what by all accounts is a very professional um, they were the quote from the perspective of the film, clearly they're supposed to be the bad guys, but they come across as very professional. They come across as very you know they they're, they're mission oriented like they're they' they're in it with a, a job and a goal to do. Um, and it's del- the performance is delivered really, really well uh, in the face of a what feels like a completely unraveling Sean Penn. Um I really enjoyed those interactions because it really showed the what at the end of the day the, the, the KGB in reality was a professional intelligence organization had a reputation for being savage and brutal um, which is well earned but by the same token a lot of the functionaries and the the sort of the, the bureaucrats that would go to missions overseas like to Mexico they were professionals they were really good at intelligence case officers exactly like a CIA agent uh being sent to i'm trying to like you know to vienna or something that's they're there to to handle agents and to to work cases and things like that so i mean so i think that i think they they hit that perfectly i think they did a really really good job with that
1: no I, I definitely i definitely agree with you david i think you know watching Sean penn's character go from this like itchy yeah you know, drug addicted drug pusher to basically self-imploding by the end of the film is a fascinating watch. And and I could watch him act in those scenes for a two-hour film. I think I would be absolutely fine. Um, yeah, Sean Penn is fantastic in this. Yeah, like you see
2: him, I think his first bit of screen time is like waking up in Tijuana with a prostitute, looking just like absolute hell. And this character does not start high and fall. Like i think that's part of where the tension comes from for me because as i said like a schlesinger isn't like really grinding the suspense in this one but it's just having this character who you know is entirely unreliable and dangerous to deal with and the way that like timothy hutton is so blind to send this guy off to deal this stuff to the uh, to the soviet union you know embassy and it's like this is a bad idea and to watch scenes where David Suchet is sitting across from Sean Penn and just has this slow bubbling resentment and it just continues through each interaction and I found all of their interactions were where I kind of sat forward and was really into the movie you know scenes on like the playground or the restaurants um, when he crashes the embassy party because you never know quite what Suchet's character is capable of and he has like that hired goon that's always with him where I kept expecting for Sean Penn's you know, arm to be smashed or something. So I think to me that's where a lot of the strength lies. And I will say, though, as much as I think Timothy Hutton's character is kind of blank in the movie, there's not a lot there, really, other than the setup of this just this kid who's kind of rebelling against whatever he's got, basically. Um, I do think the scene where he's with David Suchet and Sean Penn... Um, is actually very effective when they're pushing the paper to him and saying, write down the names of people and, you know, their jobs, their personal lives, you know, sexual deviations, all these sorts of things. Like, I think that Timothy Hutton kind of comes alive in a moment like that, but it is it is Sean Penn in all those scenes that makes the movie just kind of spark when it works.
1: I do have a quick confession about the Sean Penn character if you guys would like to hear it. I would. Confess away. So... Obviously, this film is titled The Falcon and the Snowman. You can figure out who the Falcon is pretty quickly. And obviously, you can figure out, I guess, by process of elimination, who the snowman is. But I, until I watched this a second time, I didn't really ever click as to why he was called the snowman.
2: Really? That's
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. I Hey. Oh, and for those who don't get it, who haven't seen the film, it's because he does lots of cocaine yeah did that uh term not really is that
2: not as popularized maybe in the uk because like the whole snow and like i always think of the black sabbath song snow blind um although black sabbath are from the uk so you have no excuse scott whatsoever
1: oh no we have (laughs) cocaine here too don't worry (laughs) it exists oh i know that but the slang term for snow uh i i i well i can't say i've ever really taken any so i don't know all the slang terms cam (laughs) the way you've been hanging out apparently in in playgrounds in mexico (laughs) apparently well, that's another story altogether yeah. um i did also know at one point in my life the only mustache i could grow was exactly the same as sean penn's in this
0: film mm. very wispy uh, i think what i'm like one of my favorite parts is like it. he starts off with this just this terrible terrible like you know the this the 15 year old mustache mm-hmm. but the way that he sort of he plays with it throughout the film like it's almost like he's like he sits and he he touches it and like he sort of I don't want to say grooms it, but it's just like it. It almost it's this. It's a almost like a feature through the movie. It's it's very. It it stood out to me. It actually it's it's a. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it's that weird, little tiny terrible mustache. But he really sort of leans into it through the film.
1: It's what teenagers that can't grow facial hair tend to do. Is they like. They get that one bit and they just like, hey, look at my mustache. And I know this is true because Cam still can't and does try to do the same thing. Accurate. Yeah, I don't think I can grow a mustache if I tried. So, yes, that would be quite accurate. Um. (laughs) For the time this episode grows out, there's about four weeks. Why don't you just grow out a mustache and send us a photo? (laughs) No, not a chance. (laughs) Um, I think, like, the mustache thing with Sean Penn, it
2: feels also like something a young very serious actor would do where you come up with like a bit of business and you're like I'm gonna milk this for everything it's worth like I feel like when he grew that mustache he's like I'm gonna make this count and really use ways to um, accentuate it to really nail down this character and I think it's something you hear actors talk about as they mature they say no no do less do less let the character come through you as opposed to fidgeting through more superficial means but I mean, it worked here because this is like a young person who's kind of a train wreck. So it, it all worked for me. Like the fidgety nervousness of
1: it, I think, really plays. I'm just saying, movember is a few months away.
0: <laughs> Cam, we're all waiting for it. I think he's trying to say, if you start now, Cam, but uh... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Yes, <laughs> good man.
1: Um, what about you, Cam? A like. Um, I would say
2: a lot of the procedural stuff here. Steven Zalian, who we talked about at the top, like there's a lot to translate and communicate to an audience so it's not head-scratching. And I remember watching the movie Casino, which I'm a big fan of, the Scorsese film, but that like first 45 minutes or something is all voiceover explaining the ins and outs of the casino industry, and it can feel rather <laughs> burdensome for some to sit through. And the fact that this movie... Gets it across through just the Tim Hutton character kind of being your avatar into this, you know, this RTX securities firm intercepting these transmissions and all that. It's maybe a little bit confusing because you don't quite understand the connections to the CIA and the NSA, but like I feel like the movie does a good job in... Making this feel like a reality, making it feel like something you can understand. So by the end, I wasn't confused at all. I understood everything, but it does it in a way that's driven through often through character experience. Then stop the movie. Timothy Hutton's going to now speak for 10 minutes.
1: Yeah, I think that, and that's just, that's good writing right there. That's, and it's obviously very clear that this guy went on to do much greater things. Yeah. And I think even just sending Sean Penn on those missions,
2: um, they kind of let all of their exposition flow through those situations. So it's a movie that's actually quite complicated, I think, to communicate to a mm. general audience, and it does a very good job at it.
1: I'd be interested to know, and I, I'd love to get um, Mr. Zalian on as a spy master interview, but he's just one of those ones, just so busy. I don't think I'd ever get him if I tried. I'd, I'd love to know at what point the script was written versus the book and like how much he had to create versus reality, just like the little things. From the mustache to the, you know, the drug pitch in the cafe. Like all these little things that add to the film, especially the Sean Penn stuff. I, I'd be interested to know how much was him and how much was the reality. Yeah, because I know
2: the book was published, I think, in 1979, and then the movie's 85. So there would be a, a gap there. But even still, just to take, I'm sure, all of the information in that book and work it into a two hour screenplay would be. It'd be a heavy lifting act.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, in terms of likes, for me, the only one that we haven't really spoken about is I. I like that this film, while some of perhaps the trade craft is dated and stuff now, because you we know, were all computers, we're we're doing this digitally. This podcast is overseas. This is not taking Minox cameras to cipher cards. That is a different age, but I think the story. Is still very relevant today, and I, I and that's what what didn't surprise me when David said that someone had mentioned this to him because I think this film seems to have been somewhat forgotten, uh, which I think is a shame because I think the story is a very interesting cautionary tale um, for the sort of influence, ability, thats not a real word—but of youth and how people can be manipulated. Uh, and how allegiances can change and how you can become disillusioned uh, and brainwashed, perhaps, by some. And I think that still holds up. And as I mentioned, Snowden, all that stuff, you know, quite a while ago now. But these lessons haven't really been learnt. And I think this is still something that we should be examining, this type of story. and It is weird that it has sort of fallen away. This film is not one that if I posted about it online, people would be like, oh, I love that film. People don't know about this film or this story particularly. And also how like young people
2: are can be very active agents for making things happen mm-hmm. but at the same time can be very easily manipulated or misled by far more experienced people who've learned those life lessons. Like I think that's sort of an undercurrent of this movie that it's pretty timeless.
1: Yeah, the the grooming aspect is very prevalent here from not even just from David Suchet but like you think of um Christopher Boyce, Timothy Hutton's father who is played by i believe is that pat hingle yeah 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 um i we he's been on the show before i think pat hingle is featured on one i of think the we
2: films. i think he showed up in something recently i mean i always think of him of course as commissioner gordon in the Tim Burton batman films but sure. uh yeah i think we did have him show up in something recently
1: but you know he he's a former fbi agent and he's like at one point making uh his son recite lines from the charge of the light brigade the Tennyson poem, um, th- that's an influence too. He's trying to groom his son to be the replacement of him, the next FBI agent. So he- he's trying to impress on him too. And, you know, even goes back to them being choir boys and trying to impress Catholicism on a child. It There's a lot of themes being dealt with here, and I think that un- there's a-, a lot of subtext in this film that's quite rich to dig into, and-, and-, and that's something I really enjoyed.
2: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
1: Agents, pardon the interruption but we have some top secret intel. That's right,
2: independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, we
1: don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky Mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the SpyHards Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining
2: the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening
1: experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true Spy Hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com spyhard. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the Spy Jinx. Okay, guys, I'm going to take us over to dislikes, I think. But any final notes? Yeah, let's just talk a little
2: bit about some of the other supporting cast. Because I think there's a number of people that show up here that really help fill out the world of this movie. Like, I thought Dorian um, Harewood as Gene, uh, Timothy Hutton's co-worker, was actually a really interesting character. And could some ways, you could make a movie about him because he talks about his Vietnam experiences and the self-loathing that comes out at the 80s strip club they go to. Um there was several moments with him that I thought this is pretty compelling as a character and the sort of perfect supporting player you want in a movie like this because he's not the lead, the movie's not about him, but whenever he's on screen, very effective. And actually, you know, Scott, you mentioned Pat Hingle. That's another good example. The movie
0: has these players that pop up here and there that I think really work. It's actually one of one of the things that I that I noted certainly when I was watching the movie is that it there's a list of there's a huge list of character actors that appear through the film, Um, and anyone who's spent too much time, too much of their lives watching 70s and 80s television, especially, um, there's faces that pop up that you might not necessarily like Dorian, Dorian here, I think is the perfect example, as I never remember his name. But as soon as his face comes on screen, it's like, oh, my God, like, you know, it's it's eight ball from uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. But that's how I know him. But like he's been in a ton of things. Michael Ironside has this little sort of weird like appearance at the end, but he has 10 like a decade worth of TV appearances before before this. Like it's just it's this I'm not going to say a cavalcade because it isn't really like it, they're not marquee names, they're not big names, but it's a ton of very well seasoned, very well experienced character actors um, that I think really really complement the film. So,
2: and I was excited to see Jerry Harden you know, Deep Throat from the X Files show up as well, and also interesting X Files connection. You have the scenes of Sean Penn um, marking the X's on posts, which would be something that would also happen on the X Files whenever Fox Mulder wanted to communicate with X on that show. So I was like, "Wow, interesting, interesting."
1: The X Files and the Falcon and the Snowman have another connection. I like that. That's uh,
0: that's
1: nice. Um, okay, folks, I'm gonna take us over to Dislike Central. And I'm going to lead this off because I've got kind of a double-barreled one. Okay. And they both revolve around another 1980s spy film. Okay. Involving Anthony Edwards. Oh, gotcha? Yeah. You do got me. It's gotcha. So the first thing I had, and I mentioned this before when I was talking about the, the Tim Hutton character, the whole like privileged, how can I feel sorry for this guy? And that I think that's probably the thing that held me at the furthest distance from this film. So I'm not going to spend too much time lamping on it, but that does remind me a lot of Anthony Edwards' character in Gotcha because he's meant to be this like hard done by, can't get a girlfriend, uh, you know. But it turns out he's just a bit of an ass, really. Like he's just not a nice guy. He's shooting people with a paintball gun on their nice clothes without even asking permission, or right? all kinds of problems with that side of things. And so I didn't like him or that presentation too much. I don't know how close that is to the reality of the Chris Boyce character. I don't know. But then the gotcha connection, the second dislike in my group of dislikes, is one thing we remarked in our gotcha review, and you can go back and check that out in our archives, is the film wants to spend its time talking about the Anthony Edwards character. But the far more interesting character is the Linda Fiorentino character um and you want to f- watch a film about her and her spy exploits in in you know East Berlin that's a far more interesting film and I think this is the thing with Sean Penn for a lot of the time you're spending scenes watching Tim Hutton fly East Falcon around whereas I want to be spending time watching Sean Penn turn into a drug lord like you know Walter white in um, Breaking Bad and then just slowly lose his mind and get taken down. That's the interesting story in the film, not the Chris Boyce thing. And he and and yeah, obviously history shows that he wasn't the nicest of guys either. I think there's two ways to look at
2: this. I think number one, um, well, Fox. Dumped this movie because they didn't want to make it because they said they thought the characters were too unlikable for american audiences so mm-hmm. maybe there is an aspect of that where it could be by intention i don't know that we're supposed to be looking at timothy hutton necessarily i think we're supposed to kind of sympathize with his anger but i sure. don't know that we're supposed to fall in love with him um i think you know he's he's a little cold in this movie and i think intentionally so but also this was a common thing too in these types of movies if you have kind of a high wire character like a Sean Penn, you're going to have your somewhat more conventional leading man. And I mean this is conventional young leading man from the 1980s as your lead because he's even got 80s parents. There's a lot of 80s parents in this movie. Um and Timothy Hutton, they play him as sort of just visually very clean cut, I think very acceptable to an American audience. You throw him his you know photo up on a poster. People are gonna, you know, want to see it. And they're kind of going back and forth between playing Avatar for the audience to kind of discover the larger world of this tradecraft and also kind of the frustrations at the time while also giving him kind of the lead when his character isn't as... He's just not as interesting. He's not as, you know, like... He doesn't have the nervous energy. He doesn't have a
1: lot of... it's not dynamic. He's not... No, yeah. you
2: don't have kind of the complex psychological profile you have with the Sean Penn character. So that sort of makes his character less interesting, but it's almost by design and something that I don't know they would necessarily
0: do if they made this movie now. So I, I'm, I'm no filmmaker. I, I think that there's a lot of things I'm not. And so sort of being a filmmaker is certainly one of is high on that list. I'm, I'm not that I found speaking, just thinking about that and speaking to that, I found the scene at the end where he's being sort of interrogated um, by the FBI, I have to assume that it is, and he's listing off this list of grievances that he has about, you know, why he did what he did. If that had been shown or that had somehow been exposed in the story somewhat earlier to at least sort of give some motivation, I think that to me, I think that would have helped with making him a more compelling and a more interesting character Um, because you sit for. 2 hours and you're watching a pretty pretty bland I like Timothy Hutton but he was pretty bland in this movie um by the and it's only in the last sort of 5 minutes that you really get that like oh like this is this is this is what it is as opposed to like you're supposed to believe that like you know he he betrayed his country because he got one incorrectly messaged teletype on the machine that was then confirmed by a news story that he saw in a bar. Yeah, And that's, that's why, that's why he betrayed his country. And then suddenly like at the end of the movie, like it's this like, literally it's like a laundry list of, of, you know, things that have ideological reasons that have made him upset with his country. That would have somehow tying that in earlier in the film would, I think would have likely helped the development of Hutton's character. Um, in terms of making him more believable or more relatable, maybe not relatable. I, you know, I also, also have never committed treason, um, but certainly in terms of making him a more sympathetic or understanding character in terms of understanding what his motivation is.
2: Well, the inciting incident is him coming across that the CIA tampered with essentially an Australian election. And you're like, OK, that's interesting, but that feels like the way to kick off that character's journey. Like, I feel like they should have had him discovering more things and why his anger keeps building and what keeps driving him. Because if he's this angry about an Australian election for two plus hours, that seems like a bit of a stretch versus, like, someone who keeps discovering more and more through this job saying, hey, like, there's a lot going on and it's making me angrier and angrier and making
1: me want to lash out. You look at, there's a scene earlier on where he's watching, I think it's the Watergate Trials or something like that. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not too up on Watergate, but I think that's what he's right. watching on television, and he's guessing yeah. what the senators are going to say, yay or nay. Nixon's impeachment. Right. Okay. Okay, fine. Yeah. Again, relevant. Um, and um, so you've got that, and he's, he's guessing it, but you could also have it where he learns that the CIA has influenced senators in his own country, and maybe that's how that's what swung him. And then he goes and watches the television and goes, well, I know he's going to say no because they influenced him. And this is outrageous. And then that's something that can sort of militarize him a little bit there. Whereas this one thing in a completely foreign country, and now I know Australia is is an ally. I understand that. And that would anger me too if I found that out. But I don't think that's enough. I think you're both right. I love Australia. I've been
2: there. But yeah, like it seems like something like for a kid, uh, you know, this... 20-year-old kid, basically, in the U.S. in the 1970s. Like, it feels like it's not quite enough of a driving force, this election in Australia. Um, what about you, Cam? I dislike. I mean, for me, it. we've touched on it. It really comes down to just sort of the pace and that this movie just doesn't feel like it's... And I don't mind a slow burn film. We've tackled a number of them on this show. Mm-hmm. But it sort of has this sort of almost like lurching quality to it where it'll come to life for a period of time like those you know the Sean Penn scenes we'll talk about or when it feels like the screws are kind of tightening then you kind of sit forward but a lot of it feels a little bit slack in terms of just kind of it's almost like when you see a movie that is a biopic a lesser example of a biopic and it's kind of the history's greatest moments where they're just kind of showing a series of events in in a person's life but without a lot of flow. And that's how I felt through especially the first hour of this movie. It felt like we were kind of hopping to moments that were really interesting, but it didn't feel like the movie had a lot
1: of flow going on, at least in certain sections. No, I would agree. I think there's a, there's a pacing problem. There's also a little bit of a tone problem with this film because there's moments where it wants to be like farcical. Right. Um. With the stuff with Sean Penn, and then there's the super serious moments where he's being interrogated. And, you know, Sean Penn is receiving a swirly from the KGB. Mm. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, it's from the Mexican police. I should say he's receiving a swirly. Um, which I've never seen that as a torture technique before. But hey, it, it's never fun. Um, not that I know. But yeah, so I <laughs> I can see what you mean about the the pacing issue. It's something that bumped on me too. I think this film could be under two hours. I don't even mind if it's the same length. It just
2: feels like they should have tightened it up a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. maybe just found ways to pull the audience in more. Because like we are people on a spy podcast saying it's not great, but we found things we could enjoy in it. You know, like there's elements to it that make it interesting and why spy fans should check it out. But imagine a general audience sitting through this on like a Friday opening night. Like I, I don't think this would have played particularly well
1: no we deal with the slow burn films you know a lot this is you know there as david pointed out he prefers more of the bombastic spy explosion james bond films as do i that's actually my proclivity too i I lean towards those films but you know this this genre of cinema has the slow burns too and they can be done very well you look at bridge of spies i think that's an excellent example of this type of storytelling and yeah uh, slack is a very good word to describe what this film is at times uh what about you, David? I'm sure you're
0: itching to tell us something you disliked. I, I'm gonna sort of reiterate and sort of echo what you guys have uh have brought up. Probably I think I almost feel that this is three separate stories being told. Um, and mm-hmm. it can't decide which story it wants to focus on. There's Timothy Hutton's story, um uh, Boyce's story, I should say. Um and even inside of that there's the relationship with his family, there's, you know, how he struggles with his you know, has he's left the seminary, he's walked away from his faith, like he's struggling with like his beliefs. I think there's there's a whole thread in the whole story there. There's that you could tell uh, a second way of telling it would be telling sort of the, the tradecraft and actually like focusing and dive doing a a more focused storyline based around what the tradecraft is and sort of how the the spy mechanics of sort of how all of that works, um, or the the third storyline, which would be which would be Sean Penn, would be Lee's character, um, and I think that's the one that really shines in the, how they've done it. But taking all three of those and then trying to intertwine them and tell one single story in a two-hour time frame, um, it it doesn't. At the end of the day, it doesn't really work for me. It's too it's two, it's three separate, as far as I'm concerned, it's almost three separate films that have, they've tried to sort of smash in together into a, a two hour block. Um, this would almost be like, I don't know how you guys feel about like taking old movies and doing remakes on them. I have a love hate relationship. This almost feels like this would be a good HB like a 10 part HBO series. Um, and give it, and you could take all three of those narratives and really sort of take the time to explore the different facets and tell that story over a longer period of time, um, but in a a more episodic fashion. I That's, that's how I would, would have liked... I think at this point, going thinking about it, that's how I would have liked to have seen this type of story presented. And I think
2: actually that may have resolved an issue that's kind of... I, I couldn't put my finger on it until really you were talking there, which is the relationship between the two leads and that they have this friendship and like honestly did you feel that friendship really in
1: the movie
0: not in the slightest i mean that's the 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 friendship there is there's they state they make a couple of statements like the family makes a couple of statements like twice there's a slideshow where like you know they show like high school graduation and then them being altar boys together and that's supposed to establish that they're they're childhood friends and therefore, are buddy buddy for life, and you know, ride ride or die. That's, uh, but it doesn't translate well through the rest of the story. It's just sort of like, here's the exposition. Just believe believe it because we told you to believe it. But mm-hmm. there's nothing else to sort of back it up and to reinforce it. Like, what do these two talk about?
2: We never had just have scenes of them just talking. It's always kind of plot driven. The moment that feels like the most kind of twenty <laughs> year old guys goofing around is when Sean Penn comes and crashes his date with Laurie Singer's character. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of uh, kind of amusing the way that Sean Penn's playing the scene. But like, you don't have a lot of that. It seems like it's just Sean Penn kind of on looking on the verge of blacking out, hanging around Timothy Hutton's apartment. But I would have just liked a little more because I think if that relationship is stronger and you have more of a sense of what's propelling both of them and why this relationship matters, it could really pay off dramatically at the end where they're both, you know, standing side by side going to prison.
1: Or the other way around, when they're dissolving, there's a scene in in a car park where they're basically like f- firing shots at each other, not physical shots, but verbal jousts at each other. And that's their relationship falling apart because they no longer trust each other, and Sean Penn is on this drug-induced path to psychosis. And that could be really interesting if it was inf- better informed by their relationship. But it's it's just two guys hanging around. I do also quite like the scene where I think Tim Hutton's character is playing golf into the ocean. And they're just mm, yeah. kind of chatting. It, it's a nice moment that people do share with each other. They're just having a beer, chilling out on a Sunday afternoon, playing golf into the ocean. And uh, it's a bit goofy, but I, that's what boys do. Old girls. hmm Yeah. Um, well, I think before we wrap up with a not-clist question, I'm going to throw it out to any final notes. So I've got a couple, but uh, David, anything you haven't mentioned that you'd like to?
0: Um. I want to say thank you again, guys. Like, I think this is this has been a this has been a really fun experience. Um, it's, a, it's a. Sometimes I need that little shove. Like, I'm a. I have two two full time jobs and a family, so sometimes it's nice to have that little shove that you know I can tell my family that no, no, I've got to go watch a movie because I'm going to talk to some. I'm going to talk to some guys around the world about this, and you know people are going to listen to me. You know, ramble on and prattle about things that I pretend to know about. Um, And I get to sit and watch a movie for two hours, which is fantastic. (laughs) Um, So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, In terms of the movie, I I think it's a really, I think it is a really interesting movie. I think it's definitely a a movie of its, it's a movie of its time. It's got that sort of that real 80s vibe, like in terms of how the score. Yes, the the score. You know what? I sat and, I, I don't know if you guys have done this, but I sat and I listened to the score on its own. I did. Um, yeah, I did too. The the score is great. It's actually got a really great. It's Pat Metheny band for anyone who's a who's a jazz ca- ca- jazz person. Um, and the the final track is actually uh, Pat Metheny and David Bowie, um, which is was great. Um, I did read somewhere that the original score there was a lot of pop songs that were that were in the, the movie with the original cut that have been. Since cut out for, you know, whatever re releases that have been done. Um, thank you very much, licensing rights. But um, I would, I, I the the copy that I saw of this did not have the like all the the additional pop music to it. Uh, the official score is great. I would love to have heard it with the uh, with the original uh, music in it.
1: I actually did hear it with the original music, but it was really distracting hearing 99 balloons whilst he was being swirled.
0: Is that actually the song that they play? No, sir. No, sir. Oh, Just, that I'm yanking been great. your chain. I'm yanking your been, chain. That would have been <laughs> fantastic. No, no. The better song would have been You
2: Spin Me Right Round. <laughs> uh, perfect. 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 There was a, an old, I didn't mention it in the behind the scenes because it obviously came to nothing, I guess. But like, um, there was a Hollywood Reporter note um, back in the day that they'd hired Matheny and David Bowie to compose the score.
1: hmm so I read that too. It didn't sound like it was David Bowie, was obviously in that one song, but that was his entire involvement, I think. Yeah, and it doesn't even really feel like a David Bowie song that much, strangely.
0: No. I, I, it didn't I didn't jump out to me, it didn't jump out until he started singing, and then yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, that's you know, clearly that's you know, that's David Bowie, but um, but it didn't have a, it certainly didn't have a labyrinth feel to it, and that was that would have only <laughs> been like a year or two away, I guess. Yeah, so. true, true. Um, well, Cam,
2: do you have any notes for us? I've got a few small things I'll mention. Uh, Number one, there's a lot of boozing in this movie, like, and it has sort of that 80s energy of a lot of alcohol, but I think it actually kind of lends a little bit to maybe some of the self-destructive behavior of the Timothy Hutton character, because he is played quite clean cut, whereas Sean Penn is obviously, you know, the one who's often doing drugs and much more chaotic, but I think kind of the it's not really accentuated in the movie. Like they never hammer down that, this, that Timothy Hutton's character has an alcohol problem, but it would seem to be the case, which maybe lends a little bit more to that
1: character's you know journey. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I, I just like how casual they just are drinking around the office. I think that's something that's sorely missed in 2022. hmm. Yeah. Day, day drinking.
0: I'll ask the question of you both then. Have either of you tried mixing margaritas or martinis in a paper shredder?
1: I have not. Uh, Cam doesn't drink, so he wouldn't be. Uh, he wouldn't be making it for himself. Maybe he did it for some. Maybe he, maybe Cam would do it to prank someone. Um, actually, I just made a Shirley Temple through a uh, shredder, so that's all I can relate to. <laughs> what's What's like the weirdest? Is that the weirdest way
0: of mixing a drink? I'm trying to think of other ways. That's the strange. You... That's the strangest way that I've ever seen. But I I have to assume that the ink would give it a bit of a pop. So.
1: And the, the, like the leftover paper that sticks on the gears would also be in it. So you have like this white powdery stuff inside. It's, it sounds really gross. The thing I found interesting about the drinks was it's so specific. It feels like either it's just one of those crazy ideas that someone had, or it happened, and it's actually part of these, the, the story that they had. But I wouldn't want to have that drink, no. No, uh, yeah,
2: I, I agree with you, Scott. Like, it had to have happened. It's way too specific to just make up for a
1: screenplay. Yeah, it's. Yeah, uh, I agree. The I agree. insanity. Uh, uh, go on, Cal. Um
2: Yeah, I've got a couple other things. The sequence in the um in the playground where Sean Penn starts, you know, basically freaking out on Sushi and goes on this rant, and it's like doing the cut, like the flashbacks to various experiences his characters had. I thought that sequence was really effective. So I thought Schlesinger and his editor did a fantastic job with that. Um, and then just a couple of silly things. The blonde that we see with Sean Penn a few times in the movie, I guess his girlfriend, um, was actually the uh, young woman that Bill Murray is hitting on at the start of Ghostbusters when they are doing the uh, psychic tests.
1: Ah. How did you find that out? I just
2: recognized her. Oh, wow. That's a deep cut. Well done. Yes, yeah. thank you. Mm. Um... Also, this movie had a very '80s pool boy at one point in the movie when <laughs> they're at the house, and you see in the background this like very muscular blonde man in like short shorts and a tank top. I'm like, that is uh, kind of
1: distracting. Cam, I, I fully approve of this, but if you want to say something, just say it. You know, I am all for it. But it, you know, this is a, a dramatic scene, and you're focusing on the muscular pool boy at the back. I think you might have something to tell us. I'm just, How? I I support well, you. It's
2: okay. It was like Scott you and I are Star Trek fans. In Star Trek 4 there's a scene where like a whole event plays out while someone is like hosing down a sidewalk in the background and all you can do is focus on the person hosing down the sidewalk. That's how this scene was kind of played too and actually there's a one-year difference uh between um that Star Trek film and the Falcon and the Snowman. (laughs) Maybe it was a thing in the 80s to have kind of distracting background players. I can't say I
1: noticed the pool boy so double dumbass on me.
2: Well, I'm hoping that you and I can put on those same attire and maybe start working the pool at Vegas uh, this summer. Uh,
1: you, you've got some uh, crazy imaginations going <laughs> on there, my friend. Uh, are you starved for human contact right now? Are you okay?
0: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know. You know what? If if the movie can't have a uh, like a, a volleyball montage on the beach like an 80s movie doesn't have like you know the the guys playing volleyball on the beach then uh, at least have the muscular pool boy right exactly
1: it has to has to be done i did have a question before you wrap up on that cam is tim hutton the true condor man Mm, no he would be like the falcon he
2: could be like his sidekick like robin although robin's another type of bird
1: oh condor man and the falcon
2: falcon and the condor man sounds better actually but then Tim, and this kind of plays off my last observation, has the whole scene where he freaks out and tears an owl apart. So it's like he's also the enemy of owls, I guess. Which one? But isn't that
1: what condors hunt? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know wow. anything about birds. We, we, need to, we need to go to whatever falconry school that uh, Tim Hutton's character was going to. Uh, Chris, Christopher Boyce needs to school us on, uh, on birds of prey.
0: Apparently, like I read this, and I don't know if it's true, but Timothy Hutton actually spent a few months, like learning falconry for the movie.
1: It's true. I, I watched an interview with him today as part of the press junkets for the film, and apparently, as he was, you know, getting ready to do it, he would talk to Christopher Boyce at eleven a.m. every day for like three months, um, on the phone from prison, and then in the afternoon he would go and do falconry classes dedication man i i appreciate it he 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 knew what he was doing when he was using his mouth to tie up the beak thing Uh, that was looked effortless i guess i guarantee you though in real life there's no way
2: that boyce was arrested immediately after freeing the falcon in a field
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it's provocative you know true um well i've got a a final question maybe it'll it'll end us and and take us to the knock list It's, it's a nice little game to play now this film is about the Falcon and the Snowman, and both of those monikers are based off of characteristics of our characters. So obviously the Falcon, Christopher Boyce, because he has a Falcon and he likes falconry. Uh, the Snowman, it took me two viewings to figure out why he's called the Snowman. Dalton Lee loves a bit of the cocaine. So if the KGB are going to designate us with names based on quirks of our personality, what would they be calling us? Um, I've got an idea for me, but I did come up with the question. So I'm going to throw everyone else out and put them on the spot first. So uh, David, what
0: about you? What's your KGB nickname? Oh, geez, put on the spot. That's uh, whatever. Probably like according to the YouTube comments, Um, and, uh, as a word of advice to anybody listening, just avoid the YouTube comments of, of everything in general. It's the, uh, the absolute cesspool of humanity. Um, but, uh, probably something along like pretentious man or something, something along those lines, you know, it's whatever the Russian word for pretentious is. So that seems to be a recurring comment over three years, but. I I wouldn't call you pretentious.
1: The film is, but you're not. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, what about you, Cam? <laughs> Pool boy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, I, 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 it took me ages to figure out, because we, we had this game recently where, um, where they were giving people names based on like their personalities. Oh, it was Trenchcoat, funnily enough, another 80s film. And um, they like called an Irish person Blarney yeah you know that's right um and i couldn't come up with a good answer on that one it actually comes out of the week that we recorded this funnily enough but i realized that if we're talking about things that we really like and you know the falcon really likes his falcon the snowman really likes his snow so i'm gonna go with donut okay so we've got poor boy pretentious man and the donut
2: now that is a script that i think anyone would be willing to snap (laughs) up (laughs)
1: Where's Where's in these days? I'm sure he could uh, he could jump on and help us figure this one out. <laughs> well, come on in, poor boy. I think it's time for knocklist questions. Um, David, now you are our guest. We're going to talk about the knocklist, but Cam, can you just uh, talk us through what the knocklist is?
2: Yes, the knocklist is the need-to-see official classics of the SpyHards canon every week. After talking about a movie, we decide if it belongs in the pantheon of all-timers, and some of the movies on there, North by Northwest, Three Days of the Condor, Goldeneye, Goldfinger from Russia with Love, um, Hannah is on there. There is a diverse collection, but um, it's often a, a breaking point at the end, even with a, a movie that I think is pretty good, like a movie like Falcon and the
1: Snowman, but does it belong with the all-timers? Mm, and that is the question we must now answer, so guests are always first David is the Falcon and the Snowman and the Donut making the knock list
0: if it had a donut in it, then I'd say that Pride might give it the edge but uh you know what no i I would not put this on a uh on on the knock list um I think this is uh this is an interesting movie I think for people who are really into either historical context or really into like really into spy drama type Mm -hmm. um, and are willing to put up with, I'm not going to say a lot, but are really willing to put up with some of the the flaws that are in the, in the movie. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile watch. Um, But as, as you guys have alluded to already, is this something that I'm going to recommend to my friends that, uh, you know, you've got two hours on a Saturday evening and, you know, you're really looking to watch a great movie. This isn't going to make the list, but there's, there's there's better examples of the genre out there this isn't a bad film uh, but i also don't think that it's one of the the best films so so that's a
1: no from you but it sounds like you would recommend it to the people who leave comments on your videos on youtube
0: i think for some people i think that they should definitely watch this just so that i can suck away two hours of their lives yes
1: yeah (laughs) But interesting a side question, though. You know, as Cold War is your area of expertise, I know you don't like me using that word, but you are. Um, your viewers, would you recommend people that maybe jumped over to listen to the episode with you from the channel, your followers on there? Would you recommend
0: they go out and check this film? Yeah, I would actually. I think this this is. I think this this movie has a lot to offer in terms, or it's got multiple things to offer. In terms of looking at a little bit of sort of tradecraft, in terms of looking at CIA relations, in terms of how KGB operated in third third countries, there's lots of little things like that that I think are really interesting take. And it's Hollywoodized and there's things like that. But I think in terms of setting it sort of a general tone, then, yeah, absolutely. I'd say like if you're if you're super into the Cold War and you're like, you know, you want some of that that background um and catch sort of the, the zeitgeist. Like I think the movie does a an okay job, a pretty good job actually of capturing um capturing that. So
1: Okay. Um well Cam. You this is probably the deciding vote, so knockless Yay or Nay? Uh
2: no for me. Um I think it, it tells a genuinely interesting story and one that is worth the you know, spy fans watching the movie for mm-hmm. because It is different. Like, we've tackled a lot of different types of movies on this show, and I can't say that we've come across one that I would say, oh, well, it's basically the same thing as that other movie. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen really anything like Falcon and the Snowman, but kind of for the reasons I've outlined in terms of pacing, in terms of kind of feeling like a truly satisfying two hours spent, I don't think it quite delivers, but it's genuinely kind of an interesting film to to revisit. I do think, like... We often talk about movies that every movie is like a product of its era, but some feel dated. And I think this one feels dated in a way that maybe another movie from 1985 wouldn't. So, yeah, I think in that regard, it's a little bit uh, a little bit awkward. But um, overall, solid movie. And I think I liked it all the more because I watched it immediately after watching Morbius.
1: Oh, I don't think we'll touch on that film in this episode, from what I've heard, at least, anyway. <laughs> but there you go. That's two no's. So it isn't making the knock list and uh, my votes pointless. So here's my thoughts. It's it's going to be a no. I'm going to continue the icy reception for the Falcon and the Snowman. Uh, I had to get the last pun in there. And I think for... For fans of the sort of spy procedurals out there, the the less action bombastic ones, I think there's something to be found in here. I think uh, spy Cold War historians, fans of that era, you know, listeners of David's channel, I think will definitely find something to enjoy in this film because you can maybe put the performances to one side or some of the characteristics to one side and and look at the trade craft and enjoy it for what it is as like a an encapsulation of that era of spying. Which I think it can be quite interesting in that sense. But overall, I don't think it delivers. I think it delivers something different. And I think it's definitely one of those interesting ones that, say, if everyone, say, when we finished this show and we handed the knocklist over to someone and they, they devoured the knocklist, list, uh, you know, like a margarita. Uh, and then they said, I want a little bit more. This is maybe one I would throw their way. I, 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 I think they might get something out of it. It feels more like a curiosity than a staple. Yeah, and you know, also young Sean Penn, if you're charting his career, he gives a fantastic performance. I think that's something to check it out for. And you know, if if you're a fan of the sort of the writing of Steven Zalian, who's gone on to do fantastic films, again, another thing to check out. But overall, it's a no. So it looks like it's uh, three no's, and as such, the film is not making the knock list. Now, David, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today to talk about... I mean, is this your first film review on a podcast? Have you have you done guest appearances before?
0: No, I've done one other appearance for... Mm-hmm. Um... I'll give a shout out to uh, the guys, Robbie and uh, Matt over at uh, fighting on film. We talked about uh, one of my favorite cold war movies, strategic air command, um, which is uh, I had to apologize to them because I basically made them do the movie I wanted to do. Um, And it's not a, there's no fighting. There's no, there's no, there's no war type stuff on it. And I made them do that on a podcast about war films, but um, it's a, that's that's a really interesting movie for a whole variety of other reasons, but uh, uh, no. So this is this is my my second uh, time sort of dissecting movies. Mm-hmm. I I don't get out to watch as many movies or find the time to watch. Even forget about going out to watch movies. Even staying home to watch movies, I don't find as much time as I'd like to. Um, in my the the long day long gone days of my youth, I used to watch a lot more uh, watch a lot more movies whether they were critically critically acclaimed or just sort of, you know, pulp, whatever it happened to be, like i watched a lot of movies. So I like movies. Um, so the opportunity to sit and talk with like, you know, yourself, Scott and yourself cam to about you 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 guys are you're two gentlemen who clearly know a lot about movies and about movie making and sort of the the craft and the art that goes behind it. And it's really fun to listen to the podcast and talk to you guys about this. Because um, there's a lot of insight that I think uh, that a lot of people just you, people aren't aware of that goes into like how a movie gets put together and what what can make or break the film. So, well, thank oh, you, thank but
1: you. Um, but um, I'm just saying this to, to thank you for taking the time to you know, find your time in the busy schedule to talk about this film. It's it's definitely not like a top line one. It's not it's not a Bridge of Spies. It's one that requires a little bit more thought. I think. And I'm, I'm glad you found the time to sit and talk with us. But I mean, just tell the listeners, yeah, you know, a little bit about the channel.
0: Yep. So the the channel again, it's uh, the the Cold War, the Cold War channel on uh, on YouTube. Uh, we release four to five episodes a month. Uh, Saturday morning is the the regular uh, time slot. Um, there's always an episode every Saturday morning. Occasionally, when we're feeling extremely ambitious, we'll get something out on a Wednesday as well. Um, and we're basically taking a an examined look at uh, global events from 1945 through to, we haven't even decided when we're going to end, end the thing, if it's going to be 1989 or if it's going to be 1991 or if we're going to sort of carry even past that into sort of uh, into the, a bit into the 90s or whatnot. But uh, we're, we're slowly, after three years, I think we've covered maybe 15 years worth of history. Um, and we keep going back and sort of picking, picking old, uh, old topics and, that and re-examining them. Um, where we started was a little bit different from where we are now. We were doing a, a much more superficial look at the beginning. Um, and we've decided that there's there's an audience and there's a desire to get into some of the the real nitty-gritty um, on some fairly obscure topics sometimes. So it's uh, yeah. So that's uh, the Cold War Channel on uh, YouTube um check it out it's uh and you know come and leave a comment because i always read them no matter how uh (laughs) how compliment how complimentary they always are so well you know
1: i would always recommend going to check out the channel because as i've proven through the last 90 odd films i am not an expert at anything so it's nice to have an expert on the show and someone we can send people to be an expert and if you want to find out more about the cold war channel there will be a link in the show notes below as well um so david once again thank you for joining us and you are also on social media i believe we we speak to you on twitter so where can people find you that way
0: um we're on so the cold war channel is on um what are we on facebook and instagram it's the the cold war tv um because i'm old so i still use facebook from time to time uh and then on twitter i am on twitter that's and that's more me on twitter that's less the face of the channel so much as my my little tiny outlet into uh, to venting into the world, where I don't have 300,000 people following me, which is kind <laughs> of nice actually. Um, but for anybody who's interested, it's uh, at Cold War Channel uh, on Twitter, um, and I'm uh, semi-active on there, and you everybody gets to hear my deepest, most intimate thoughts about whatever's happening in the world at the moment. So. No, well, you know, we follow
1: you in all those places and we'll be, when this episode drops, we'll be doing posts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, connecting to them all as well. So you'll easily find them through those connections as well. So David, once again, thank you for joining us. Cam, the question falls to you. What are we doing next week? We are tackling the 1967 Casino Royale. It's going to be crazy, folks. Strap yourselves in. I I had the pleasure, question mark, of seeing this on the big screen just a few weeks ago at the Prince Charles Cinema here in London uh, with a couple of the listeners of the show. Shout out to Alice. And, um, you know, it wasn't my first time watching it, but definitely an interesting experience watching it live. And we do also have a Spy Master interview next week with a Bond girl, but I'll leave that to next week to find out a little tease for you there. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, and that's a choice right there, is to watch Casino Royale 1967, not the Daniel Craig one. I will reinforce that. And join us next week. Uh, You can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, do you know the restaurant in San Francisco?
0: He never introduced himself by name and and then he excused himself and there I was, I was now communicating with somebody from the KGB. He exposed more than 1600 Soviet bloc intelligence officers and his information led to the breaking of some of the most serious KGB and Polish intelligence spy rings in the West just two short
1: excerpts from the Cold War Conversations podcast. Go check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts.